0: Well, we have arrived, church family, at, uh, as far as our look at a harmony of the Gospels, essentially a chronology of the life, as best we can put it, from the Gospels of Jesus Christ. We have arrived at the end of the first part of the story. According to Luke, this is, we're going to look at the resurrection tonight, and, and as we do that, uh, I, I'm going to have us both start and end, uh, in theory here, in the same spot, which which is not one of the Gospels, but is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and so I would ask that as we, as we look at some of the other parts in the Gospels, kind of, if you got a pen or you got a bookmark, leave it there, because we're going to come back there, But this is what Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verse one. It says, now I make known to you, brothers, the the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now let me pause there for a second. He says, I delivered to you, I, I told you, that which is of the, the greatest, the paramount, the utmost importance, what I also received. And he's about to quote uh, the section of scripture he's about to write, uh, linguists have traced back. And actually, uh, these next several verses are widely regarded as the oldest written portion of the Old Testament. Now, 1 Corinthians is not the oldest book in the New Testament, but these, these next few verses, essentially what these next few verses uh, are, is within uh, within for sure 18 months of the death and resurrection of Christ. Scholars really think within the first six months, this is essentially the first gospel tract that was ever used. This, this is what the early Christians were going and saying, let me tell you what has happened. And so Paul is saying, I, I gave this to you as of the greatest importance, and he's going he's gonna to proceed to what he quotes here, quote from... Uh, again, what was and, t- and take this into consideration for anyone today that would say, "Well, the the resurrection of Jesus—that was just something that they made up as time went on." No, this was in within six months. This is what the people are running around Jerusalem and saying. This is what he says: "I delivered to you of first importance what I also received—that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried." We looked at that uh, last Wednesday. We walked through that aspect of of what was there. And that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, meaning at one, so that one, he appeared 500 people at one time, the overwhelming majority of whom eyewitnesses are still alive today, though a couple have died. Then he appeared to James, and that would be James, not the disciple, that's James, the brother of Jesus, the book of James that we've been walking through. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And obviously that part in verse eight, that would be Paul's addendum to that, that essentially old, te- that, that old gospel tract. And, and the reason I want to start here and, and is, is simply this, everything we're going to cover from last week and tonight, that, that is right there. Succinctly phrased for you right there in scripture as far as what we've been looking at. That in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with God's written revealed word, Jesus died for our sin on our behalf, propitiation for us. That Jesus was in fact buried in a real tomb because he was dead. And that Jesus in accordance with the scripture as prophecy said, rose from the dead. And not only did he rise from the dead, right? Because if it stopped there, you well, go, he rose from the dead, and, and you could arguably go, how'd you know that? Prove it. Well, let me tell you how he proved it. He appeared, 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 he appeared. This is what we look at tonight. So so keep that there. Well, where does it start? Well turn with me to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter twenty-eight. Matthew twenty eight. This is also reflected in, in in the gospel of Mark chapter 16, but we're going to look at Matthew 28 here. So Jesus died three o'clock Friday afternoon. They had to work fast to get his body off the cross and to get him some level of tomb ready by six o'clock because at six o'clock the, the Sabbath rules would come into effect. The Passover celebration would start. They would not be allowed to do anything. So <clears throat> they've got this quick span. Now to help you picture this, because if you're like me for years, if I really had thought hard about that, um, it would not make a whole lot of sense to me, uh, because well, three hours, you got to get, I mean, you think about it, if you only had three hours, and we got to, you know, get a body down from the cross here, and you got to drive across Austin to get the stuff, to come back, to then do it, well, because what you don't realize, what I didn't realize, at least to go over there, is so this is a map of, uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, here's where, there's one of two sites that they think that Jesus was crucified, Golgotha. Um, and in both sites, you'll find the same thing, though it's harder to see where at, at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Here's the hill where Jesus was crucified. And about a hundred feet around the corner is where the tomb was in the garden. Well, okay, that's kind of different. If we just had to take someone off a cross and just simply walk across the MPB to the sanctuary and back and forth a couple of times, you could do that in three hours. So it's it's not it's much smaller and tighter in terms of the geography of where people are moving. In fact, if you go to the Garden Tomb today, uh, that you know, if you go out there, there's there's this stone hill that looks like a skull, the bottom of which would have been where Jesus was crucified. By the way, all the depictions of Jesus. Up up on the hill, like far away where no where nobody can get to. And that's not actually what is in scripture. He would have been crucified along the roadside. He was somewhere where they were where the crowds were close enough that they could jeer him and hear him talk and spit on him. Uh, they didn't crucify way up high. They'd crucify on the roadside as a warning to people who would try to cross Rome. So now what that is at the bottom of that hill is just a bus parking lot. Just a parking lot. There's nothing special, which I just think is is absolutely in line with our Lord. The importance is not the site where it happened; it's what it did. But literally, here's so you'll stand at this viewing platform and you'll look over here, and then you'll turn around and you will walk. If I'm here, if I'm here overlooking that bus parking lot in Golgotha, it's not for me to the corner of the room that the garden tomb, the empty tomb is. Truthfully, it, that's not that's that's how far we're talking. It's not not far. So all that goes on. They, they go back Friday night, they're in morning Saturday, they're waking up to a reality that none of them, if they're honest, even though Jesus clearly prepared them for this, none of them thought this was possible. Their Lord, their, their teacher, their God, the Messiah, the one that they have, Lord, you alone have the words of life. He is he is thoroughly dead. His body wrapped, bound in a tomb. Of course, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, those who are against him, they are all uh elated. And then it says this, come Sunday morning, Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look in the grave. Now, let me pause there again for a second. Matthew's going to hone in that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came. In Luke, it's going to say the women came. In John's gospel, it's going to focus only on Mary Magdalene. And I've heard that used before to say, well, look, They can't even get their story straight. See how they contradict each other? That's no more a contradiction than if if I stand here and say, well, Thomas came to Bible study tonight. Well, 100 people came to Bible study tonight. Well, Thomas and John Patty came to Bible study. There's no contradiction in there. We're We're just limiting who we're focusing on in the story. It's not a contradiction. It'd be a contradiction if it said, only Mary Magdalene came and no one else that would be a little bit tougher, but that's not what it says. So I just tell you that in case you ever hear that from a peer, from a a kid, from a grandkid, from a great grandkid, just know that's not a contradiction. It's just a matter of each of the gospels are written by a specific author the Holy Spirit's using to write it down. And so they've focused, they've chosen for whatever reason to focus on certain individuals uh, there. So in Matthew, it says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We know there's a couple other women who were there as well. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. I mean, that's, and understand that. I mean, you're talking, let's put it this way. These are, these are Navy SEAL Team Six. And they are paralyzed in absolute terror like dead men at the power and might of these two angels. We're here, this single angel that shows up, which again reminds us that all of our go back to our series on the unseen. Uh, our little Looney Tune depictions of cute little angels, precious moments with the halo and the wings—that's that's not what an angel would look like if they if they showed up today. But there's a really creepy. This is so much more than what you asked for. But there's a really creepy. Um, it looks really creepy, and you'll at first glance go, "Oh my gosh, that's something. That must be something demonic," um, computer image, and it's. It's, it is creepy. It's these wheels and eyeballs off. Basically, they've tried to make a literal rendition of what the angels described in Ezekiel look like. They're, they're, they're the things of nightmares. They're not the things that you're like, oh, sweet, precious moments. Let's put a number on that and give it to a child for whatever birthday it is. Um, so it says, the angel told the women, do not be afraid. No joke. Do not be afraid for I know you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here for he is risen just as he said. "'Come, see the place where he was lying. "'Go quickly, tell his disciples "'that he is risen from the dead. "'Behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, "'and there you will see him. "'Behold, I have told you.'" It says, "'They left the tomb quickly "'with fear and great joy, "'and they ran to report it to, uh, to the disciples.'" And behold, Jesus met them, greeted them. They came upon, came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And he said, do not be afraid. Go take word to my brethren for they are to leave for Galilee where they will see me. Now in uh, that same deal, if we flip over then to John's gospel, and by the way, if you can keep a little finger in Matthew, do so because we're gonna primarily go back and forth between John and Matthew. If you flip over to John's gospel, John in chapter 20 will say it this way. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. While it was still dark, saw the stone already taken away. And so John's gonna cut to the chase here. So you're gonna see where some of the stuff Matthew has just filled us in. It says, she ran... Came to Simon Peter, the other disciple, whom Jesus and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said, "They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they laid him." So Peter and the other disciple went forth and were going to the tomb. They were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb. And stooping, looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon will come. And so here, here's what you have: Sunday morning comes, and sometime before dawn, the angel shows up. thing like an earthquake takes place. The the Roman soldiers are paralyzed for fear. That angel moves the stone and and in a quiet holiness that was, there was no crowd. No one showed up. Now Jesus rose according to the scriptures, meaning the entire Old Testament points to the fact that the Messiah Messiah will will die and and rise from the grave. Jesus has just spent specifically with his disciples the last year, very clearly telling them, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again on the third day. Yet when it happens, there is not a single human being present because the real reality is there is not a single human being who's actually really fully believed and understood. And in and, 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 and a quiet holiness with only the Lord present, Jesus walks out of that tomb, fully glorified with a resurrected body Sin has been atoned for, death defeated, done. And so, what we pick up in the story is, is not that because there was no one there to see it when it happened other than Jesus. I'm assuming the Roman soldiers didn't see it. If they were truly passed out like dead, then it was truly. There was no one who saw that holy moment. So, the ladies get there, they see the empty tomb and they see the empty tomb. John focuses on Mary Magdalene. She runs back. The first thought is someone's taken his body. They've done something to him. Peter and John come running out, uh, come running out to see uh, what's there to what's happened. And it does make this interesting statement though. If you look at verse eight, uh, it says the linen linen wrappings that they would have wrapped Jesus in. um, The wrappings, his body just passed through. The head cloth was was folded clearly, re- referencing a supernatural work. By the way, it tells you too that the body was not stolen, because if these were grave robbers, they would have taken the burial clothes, because those were of value. They would not have un- disrobed, and if they had disrobed him, the linen shroud, the linen would not still be in the form of the body; it would be undone. So there's an apologetical aspect there. But look at verse eight. Peter goes in and sees it. But in verse eight, it says, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb and also entered, he saw and believed. And we believe that disciple to be the disciple John, the writer of the gospel of John. He saw and all of a sudden it clicked. Peter saw it hadn't clicked yet. John saw and it clicked. It's there. Now, John's gospel says, so it says the disciples went away to their own homes. And then in verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she, stood, she stooped, looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus which is really interesting. We're not going to go deep into that time, but it's just really interesting that in the resurrected Jesus, Mary doesn't recognize him. The disciples on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him. There's some ability to, for him to have passed unrecognizable until he's ready for them to recognize him. She said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she supposed him to be the gardener. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, which is brilliant. Calls her by name. And then she realizes it's him, and she says, Rabbi Nye, so she she says this. Now, if you flip over to Luke's gospel, again, keep a hand here in John. If you flip over to Luke's gospel, Luke's going to record it in this way. Uh, On the first day of the week, um, uh, they came to the tomb bringing spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away. When they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them, dazzling clothes. Uh, the women were terrified. They bowed their faces. The, the angel said, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how it was said to you. Um, while he was still in Galilee, that he would be suffering at the hands of sinful men to crucified, the third day rise. They remembered his word. They returned from the tomb, reported these things to 11 and to all the rest. Now these were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, which would also most likely be, since James would probably be the brother of Jesus, that'd be Mary, the mother of Jesus and the other women, and they were telling these things uh, to the apostles. Um, But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Peter got up and ran to the tomb. So there's obviously a little bit different in between, a little bit of nuance between the different accounts, but you get the overall picture of what's happening. The ladies get up in the morning. They go to the tomb because they weren't able to finish everything they needed to for the body of Christ. To their shock, due to their unbelief, they get there. the, the, The Roman soldiers are Paralyzed like dead people, and the tomb is empty. There is immediately a reaction of horror, and their their minds go to, someone's stolen the body. What have they done? Uh, We're not not able to do this. Now, what seems to be, if you take all three of those passages and and attempt to harmonize them together, uh, they go, they see that. And one of two things either happens, either in that moment, Mary Magdalene leaves, in terror, which you see John, and goes and tells Peter and John, and they come running. Uh, Or you have the full encounter. All of those ladies see the angels. They have that instant reaction. They see the angels. The angels tell them they're going to turn to go, and John just chooses to focus only on Mary Magdalene, and when she sees Jesus, but reality is from Matthew's gospel, we know all these ladies see Jesus, and they fall down at his feet, and they worship and then they go when they 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 give the report and and whether uh, whether they already knew what happened and then Peter and John came or after it seems from chapter twenty Peter and John came running beforehand and remember the way Scripture words stuff it's not being dishonest in any way but but sometimes what John chooses to give you a lot of depth on Luke's just summarized in a simple statement trying to keep the narrative moving in his work that's that's many times how Scripture works and so. What's interesting though is this, in this little statement, I try to do some digging on this back in John's gospel, at least just simply. So Mary's at his, at his feet says, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I've not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father, your father, and, and my God and your God. And that, uh, so you get this picture from Matthew. They're at, her, at the feet worshiping. Jesus says, stop clinging. And, and I just did a quick refresh this afternoon. Cause it's kind of a strange statement, especially because in John's gospel, we're about to turn the page. And Thomas is going to doubt. And what does Jesus tell Thomas? Touch me. What's going on? What What's happening? And there's been a lot of attempts out there to try to deal with it and look at it and this and that. And, and I, I think the real simple answer is there's there's one of two things happening, though both things can happen at the same time uh, here. One is what Jesus is telling, There there is a desperation in Mary Magdalene's part. Oh my goodness, Lord, you've risen. And there is this clinging and and, and, and Jesus, knowing hearts, knows she's she's not quite getting it, that that it, it, he's not about to go disappear again. He, he's not risen like Lazarus, where Lazarus is, is going to come back to life, but then Lazarus is one day going to die, because he's still human in the way that we're human. So there's this seeming this misunderstanding. I give you kind of a paraphrase of how one theologian put it, uh, this way. Uh, I'm not yet ascend- in an ascended state, so you don't have to hang on to me as if I were about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy, for sharing the good news, not for clutching me as if I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. Stop clinging to me, but go and tell my disciples I'm in the process of ascending to my Father and your Father. So that's part of what it could be. What it could also just simply be is this Jesus has something for Mary to go do, it's to go and tell. But Mary is not moving. So Mary, stop clutching me, stop clinging to me, get up, I've got something for you to go do. In reality, and you, so you understand why both could be true. It could be that Mary really isn't getting it and there's something deeper going on in her heart that Jesus is addressing, which would also apply to just a simple reality. Jesus, Jesus needs these ladies to go tell. The time is not to, to simply stop. Jesus has Jesus risen, go tell. Go, you, we gotta, you gotta take this message back back to and so simply singing that's what seems uh, seems to be it's not it's not that well Thomas is allowed to touch and Mary's not allowed to touch it's hey Mary I got something for you to do it's time to get up and it's time to get moving it's time to get going it's not time to just sit here and, and clutch me uh, just indefinitely it's it's time time to move now this is also interesting and I hadn't noticed this and um, it's been a bit since I've done in-depth studying here, but when he says, go tell my brethren, it's normal for us to all read that. And natural assumption is go tell, go tell the disciples, which it could be, but, but I, I, there is a case to be made in the gospel of John. John doesn't ever refer to the disciples as Jesus's brethren. That when Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, go tell my brethren, what he's saying is go tell my, bro- my actual half-brothers, go tell James, go tell Jude, go tell them. Because they don't believe in Jesus. Go tell them. Go tell them. Uh, and, and again, that would seem to also line up with what did you go back to that 1 Corinthians passage, what was the order Jesus rises? And then he begins these appearances. and then those appearances include to his brothers. We know for sure James, it, it's assumed his brothers, because we know in Acts before he ascends, uh, there are more people than just just the, the 12 there. Uh, and it says that after he ascends and they go back to the room, the brothers of Jesus and, and, the, and the mother of Jesus are with the disciples there. So Jesus appears after this, back in Matthew 28. So I told you to keep a, to keep a finger there. Matthew 28, it's going to say this, uh, verse 11, Matthew twenty-eight eleven. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assaulted with the, uh, assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should continue to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money, they did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread to the Jews as it is to this day. So we haven't even gotten through one 24 hour period of Jesus being risen and we've already got lostness trying to cover it up. And then there's a great, I, I won't belabor here, but there is a great, uh, and, and I was really surprised when I watched it several years back because they actually really hold in the movie to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But it's, best thing I can tell, it's a secular movie. It's very well done. It's a movie called Risen is the name of the movie. And it's all about the Roman soldier who's put in charge by the authorities to go find and track down Jesus's body. And uh, it, it's it's got some great visuals to help you visualize, uh, uh, you know, w- w- the fact that you died on a cross, you were you were condemned, and you didn't get a tomb, you got a mass grave. And they, you know, they take their, and you know, he shows up right as they're taking some guys off the cross, and they just walk them up the hill and throw their bodies into a ditch with a bunch of others. And um, there's a, they show the appearances of Jesus. It's a really good, uh, it's a really good movie, and I was pleasantly surprised. It's, like I said, it's a secular Sony produced it, but it, they actually they actually hold to. I mean, the end of the movie is Jesus. There's multiple resurrection appearances of Jesus that, uh, that go on. So uh, anyways, that but you see there, there's an attempt to cover it up on behalf of the authorities and that hasn't stopped to this day. It's taken different tunes and different arguments people will throw, but hadn't stopped to this day. Now, back in Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24. So that morning, Jesus has already appeared to the ladies now, here in sometime after that early morning, but before the evening, uh, here's what it says in Luke 24. Two of them were going that day to a village named Emmaus, and that's the last one. Let me go back here so we can see visually. Uh, so here's, here's Jerusalem. Here's Emmaus. So we got some disciples who are leaving the city that day, and they are going back uh, not not members of the 12, but, but some disciples of Christ. They were going back and they were talking with each other. Verse 14, about all these things that had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself appeared, or approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He said to them, "'What are these words you're exchanging "'with one another as you're walking?' And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said, "'Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem "'unaware of what's happened?' And he said, what's happened? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word in the sight of God and all the people, the chief priests our rulers, delivered to him the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early this morning, they did not find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and, and found it just exactly as the woman had said, but, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. I mean, just, let's, let's just, process that for an instant here. Did you hear what they just said? They just said, oh my goodness. Well, Jesus, you know, well, stranger, we'll tell you what happened. Jesus, we believed he was going to be the one, the Messiah. He had all these mighty deeds. He was unlike anything we've ever seen, but the authorities crucified him. They buried him. And they said, not only that, but it's been three days, almost as if they kind of knew the prophecy about three days. And not only that, but but the some women showed up and said the angels had, but, but no one's seen him. And so we're just we're just walking back to Emmaus. Sad. I, I mean, the irony of them get they, they just spouted all the proof. And yet they're totally blind. So Jesus, when he says, Oh foolish men, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken was it not necessary for the christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory and here's a great statement then beginning with moses which would be the torah genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy the law and with all the prophets jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures so here's what happens as they're walking along jesus says okay hey you don't really get it, do you? Let me explain it to you. And he starts back with Genesis 1.1. And as they walk, he walks them through the Old Testament scriptures and helps them see how all of the Old Testament scriptures point to him. And not just point to him, but point to the fact that he was to die, that he was to be buried, and that he was to rise again. He walks through all of it. And as they were approaching the village where they were going, he acted as though that he were going further. But they said, well, stay with us. It's it's almost evening. The day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he reclined at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, breaking it. He gave thanks. Then their eyes were opened. They recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Said one another, while our heart's not burning within us while he was speaking to us, the scriptures. And they got up at that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem and found gathered the 11 and those who were with them. And and so they find these people, and this is what the people are saying. The Lord really has risen and he's appeared to Simon. He's appeared to Peter. And they began to relate their experiences on the road about how how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Now, that statement about he appeared to Simon, you remember in 1 Corinthians, it says, and he appeared to Cephas. It specifies that he appeared to Peter. We don't know actually when that, we know it was on resurrection day. We don't know where it was. We don't know what all took place. Because that statement in 1 Corinthians and that statement in Luke are the only statements we have. We just know that Jesus appeared at some point on resurrection day to Peter uh, personally. There's a personal appearance, and that's what these disciples from Emmaus, what they, what they find. And of course, it says that as they're saying this, verse 36 there in Luke, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thought they had seen a spirit, and he said, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, see my feet. It is I touch me and see for his spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I do. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet while they were still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. And he said to them, uh, just as even further proof of the fact he is there physically, do you have anything to eat? I didn't need food because he I was hungry because he's got a perfect body. But there's there's something true there, which I guess means if if, because this won't be the only time we see Jesus eat. If in the resurrected body, you don't have to eat for sustenance, I guess in the resurrected body, you can just eat for the for the joy of whatever it tastes like. And because your body won't be all messed up. So, you know, we won't need to eat in heaven, but there's obviously a feast. And um, I guess you can eat all of your favorite sweets and not have to worry about the after effects. Uh, so the, here's these appearances day of. John records the same thing back at the end in, in John chapter 20. He records that Jesus appears, Uh, appeared to the disciples, that they were gathered together. He appears to them. You see very similar statements there. Uh, Jesus, here he is appearing on Sunday evening. And of course, we all know that the famous part after that, that he does all this appearing, but there's one person, there's one key disciple missing, Thomas. Thomas wasn't with them. And he said, look, I'm not going to believe it until I see it, until I put my hands in the the imprint of the nails, my finger in the place nails, I'm not going to believe it. Now, we can knock Thomas pretty hard for being, I mean, even his nickname, Doubting Thomas. But also understand, he wasn't the only one doubting because none of the others were at the tomb when 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 the stone rolled away. They weren't. Now, some, and I think this is mere speculation as to why maybe Thomas seemed to take it so hard. You got to show me. Uh, so, so again, hear this. This is this is somewhat emotional speculation, but it was Thomas on the way to go raise Lazarus from the dead, which will be in the final weeks of Jesus's life. It was Thomas who speaks up and says, "All right, Lord, we're with you. They can kill us too." And obviously, Thomas then, when when Jesus's life was actually being threatened, Thomas went and f- fled like a scaredy cat. So, some have speculated that some of this reaction on Thomas's part is because there is some added emotion there. Again, it can kind of help you get in someone's mindset, but let's be clear, that is that is kind of, I would call it emotional speculation. Could be true. Could also not be true. Scripture doesn't really speak to what all was running through Thomas, just that Thomas said, I got to see it for myself. So a week goes by, and obviously Jesus shows up again there in John 20 and uh, says, look, touch me, see me. And so Thomas answered and said, my Lord, my God, and he he believes, but then it makes this. Sta- Jesus makes this statement that this is really pivotal for all of us in this room. Because, because as you're doing this, and as I just try to think this, and even as I'm trying to describe it for us, to where we, to, as the best I can, where we can see it and we can we can feel it, and we can take, we just as if we're there, and we can imagine what would that have been like. What would that have been like? How, how awesome to be one of those, those early followers of Jesus who sees Jesus appear and the, and, and, and all the things they saw and, and the wonder of it and all of this in. yet yeah, listen to what Jesus says. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Isn't that interesting? There is a there is a famous um, uh, late eighteen hundreds early nineteen hundreds uh, um, man. Uh, if, if you studied if you studied the history of worldwide missions, named Sundar Singh. Anybody ever heard of Sundar Singh? Anybody? Don't be shy. Like legitimately, hardly no. Wow, wow. This will make this story even better. Um, Sundar Singh grew up in British occupied India, uh, Hindu boy and, uh, but was obviously because of the British, British um, uh, government in India, was, was, was in a school where they taught the things of Christianity. Well, his mother died tragically when he was young, and he began to hate God for her death. And so he gets to a point where he, where he says, he prays one night in his anger, and he's always challenging his teachers and coming after, and he prays one night in his anger. And he says, God, here's the deal. I hate you. And I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. I'm going to jump in front of the first train that comes through unless you stop me. Well, that night in his sleep, Jesus in the flesh appears in a dream. And he obviously gets saved and he becomes burdened and he will be known for the fact that he will walk thousands upon thousands of miles all throughout the Himalayan mountain region, all throughout Tibet, all throughout parts of Nepal and India, taking the gospel, seeking to win the, the, the Buddhists, uh, the Buddhist and Hindu monks to, I think primarily Buddhists, to faith in Christ. He will have crazy stories that are very, I'll use the word apostolic just in the sense of things that are right out of the book of Acts. He walks into a village where he preached the gospel. They beat the snot out of him. They take him outside of town in the mountains. They throw him in a, in a cavern. Uh, they pull the rope up. There's no way to climb out. The only way in and out is up top and they plug it Or they 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 uh, they shut the door and and lock it. Three days go by, and all of a sudden the door opens and he sees a hand drop a rope down. And he climbs up the rope. No one's there. And so rather than shaking the dust off his feet, he marches back in the town and starts preaching the gospel. And so the magistrate comes out furious. Who betrayed me? Who opened this door? Who stole it? And they're like, none of us did. And he's like, well, someone did because, because the, 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 there's only one key and I have it and it's still on me. Blue his mind. Sundar Singh, of course, like we like to do in the West, we hear people that God does stuff. We're like, oh, please come to all our conferences. And so that's what the West did. And he was actually, this is initial tell you, uh, you know, what Papua say is great. There's so many good things of the past, but there's also bad things in the past. Sundar Singh was really put off by his tour of the church in England and America back in the 19-teens and 20s because of how materialistic Christianity was. He was very put off by it. But in the course of that European tour, he was sharing stories, and a young girl, 14 years old, came up to him just beside herself. She knew the Lord, uh, she loved the Lord, but she had never had any of these miraculous encounters with the Lord and just the weakness of her faith. And she was so ashamed having heard Sundar's stories and, and Sundar looked at her and said, he said, no, no, no. He said, it is not you who have weak faith. It is me who has weak faith. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe having never seen. I only, Jesus had to show himself to me for me to believe. You've believed because you heard the word. And that young girl would grow up to be whom you know as Corey Tinboom. Blessed are those who have believed not because they have seen, but because they heard. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. You are blessed, church family, because your faith has rested in a Jesus whom you've yet to see but you know beyond a shadow of a doubt is exactly who he says he is and is coming back to get you. Scripture says we are blessed for that. After this, we'll find Jesus has other appearances to the 11. Somewhere in this time period, he will appear to the 500 at one time. Uh, He will... He will, in uh, this period in John chapter 21, I'm just going to summarize it, but John 21, the, some of the disciples have gone back to the region of Galilee. This is somewhere in between Resurrection Day and Ascension Day, that 40-day period. Uh, they've gone back, they're out fishing. Jesus shows up as a figure on the on, you know, on the beach. He gives them some commands. They realize who it is. They bring in some fish. Peter dives off the boat and he's after him. And of course, we know this story for being the restoration of Peter. What, you know, Jesus sits down and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? And of course, it says Peter is just sorrow fills his heart the three times reflective of the fact that three times he was given the opportunity to stand for Jesus like he claimed he always would. And not only did he deny Jesus, but he did it with such profane language that everyone around him was like, no, there's no way you know Jesus. But here's what we see. So here's, I mean, here's a guy who said, Jesus, I'm going to be your number one follower. essentially Peter. And when push came to shove and the heat came on, he became Jesus' number one hater. In the eyesight of Jesus, remember that from last week, that that all happens, and it says when the the, the bird crows, that Jesus looked up, they could see each other. Peter flees, weeping. And here we are, who knows how many days after. Here's what's amazing about our Lord. Peter is a broken man. Jesus didn't show up and go, Peter, you you really blew it. You're the disciple of the loud mouth. Jesus just said, do you love me? Jesus knew how to deal with where Peter was at. And Jesus, in dealing with Peter, wasn't there to crush Peter and humiliate him. He was there to restore him. Now, restoration, when we walk into sin, when we betray the Lord with our lives, restoration does not happen apart from brokenness. When we sin, there should be brokenness. When we really realize what we've done, there should be humility to acknowledge, Lord, you have saved me. Here I am seated at your table and I should be filled with love and joy, fellowshipping, looking in the fullness of your face. And I have gotten distracted playing with the sin running around on the floor. And I'm turning back saying, you're right and I'm wrong. There should be a brokenness there. There should be a, a, a true godly sorrow. And that's different than just simply feeling nothing but guilt and shame and constantly living under the condemnation. That's Judas. You know, Judas also cried after betraying Jesus. But something kept Peter going to go back to Jesus. Judas, and remember, all Peter sees Jesus, Resurrection Day, having just seen Jesus prior getting crucified on Friday, there's only a couple days, there's only a couple days. Yet Judas, well, forty-eight hours earlier from the resurrection, he will weep. But in his despair and in his self-centeredness, and self-centeredness meaning he only sees himself, his guilt, his sorrow, his shame, he runs out and hangs himself and commits suicide. There's two different ways when you fall into sin to respond. One, that will bring death. Now, as a believer, not death eternally, but certainly condemnation and and destruction and and keep us from experiencing the fullness of our relationship with the Lord. The other side is to be restored by Christ and understanding that our God is a God when we fall into sin, whose aim is not to come thump the Bible and hang it over our head and go, look how sorry you are, Christian. Remember, Remember how... His aim is always to restore us because he wants us for us to walk out the reconciliation we have with him. His desire is that we would be in constant loving fellowship with him. It is never to, to heap condemnation over our head. It is, to, it is to bring us to back to a point where we are in right fellowship because that's the heart of a loving God who is fully holy and will not let our sin pass by. Also notice this. Jesus didn't say, hey, you know what? Let's just not. No, he said, nope. We still got to address the elephant in the room, Peter. But then when, when he's restored, what does he tell Peter? Go feed my sheep. Go feed my sheep. I've got a mission for you. I've got a job for you to do. And we've covered that with that several weeks. We've covered it at winter renewal. God has a purpose and call. And at the same time, Peter will look up. And by the way, what drives, what drives our mission, what drives our obedience to the Lord, it's, it's love. It's love. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And understand how do we demonstrate our love? What, what, what enables us to obey? Loving him. What demonstrates our love for him? Obeying him. You can't distinguish in addition, to that there's a great there's a great little deal where Peter, after this, and and I love Peter. Uh, if Peter's gonna, you know, Peter can have this incredible encounter and then turn around and make say something really dumb again, and and Jesus is is still faithful in his life. And I think we've all been there. Wow, we just had this amazing encounter, Lord, and then I just did something really stupid. Um, and Peter's like, well, hey, what about what about him? Looking at John, what about him? And and <laughs> what because because Jesus has just told Peter, Jesus just basically told Peter, hey. You, you're going to follow me and and you're going to have a rough death. And Jesus sees the disciple and says, "Lord, uh, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, which is a reminder, church family, God didn't ask you to be me and God didn't ask me to be you. God asked you to be you and me to be me. And he wants me to follow him on his plan for my life, not your plan for my life. And not his plan for your life. And vice versa in all the various ways we can do that. What does discipleship come down to? You follow Jesus. It's followership. And it's not complicated. We teach every kindergartner how to do it, or at least we used to. I don't know if they still play it, but it's called Follow the Leader. We gotta be focused on what God's purpose is there. In addition, there's this, I just wanna point this out um, for all my apologetic loving people. The gospel of John ends and it says this way, there are many other things Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose not even the world itself would not, would, cont- would not contain the books that would be written. That's not a statement saying that Jesus in his three-year ministry did an infinite amount of miracles. Remember back then their books were codexes and the gospel of John was probably about that big. It's not John saying that there's an infinite amount of things. Well, how could Jesus have possibly done an infinite amount of miracles? The whole world would have been healed, but gee, we know Jesus didn't heal everybody. What it's saying is, or their book, basically saying the way they had to record and write stuff down in their day, and we don't, we don't have the ability to record everything. that. If you tried to write a true biography of the, the 30 plus year life of Jesus, we, we don't have the books that could fit that because they didn't back then. Because they wrote on what we call codexes. Um, So just a little interesting deal of note there. Of course, how does all this end Uh, in this time? Jesus is going to ultimately take the disciples up and he's going to charge them with what we call the great commission. Go therefore. And actually, if you study, go is not the command in the great commission. The command is make disciples. Now, if we're gonna make disciples, you gotta do it by going. If someone comes to faith in Christ, you follow it baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, full portion of the the, 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 the full Godhead. Teaching them, which also tells us this, the goal is not to just get people to go, all right, you need to be saved from your sin. Pray this prayer after me. Woo, we had 500 kids. Pray the prayer. That's not the goal. The goal is to see them get saved, yes, and to follow through in obedience with baptism as a first step of a life of obedience. And then it says, after all that, teaching them teaching them. The goal of being a disciple is not just getting, whoo, we got this many people converted. The goal is not just conversion. it's, It's to see people restored and reconciled to Jesus and then grow up in their faith to walk with him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love, which is what we are about as a church, making disciples, which involves both evangelism to the lost and discipleship of the saved. And we don't get to like cut those in half and pick one or the other. We're being asked, do you have a passion for evangelism or a passion for discipleship? Well, both, biblically, it should have both because both are involved in making disciples. And by the way, that passage is binding on all of us. That is our commission. You wanna know what our mission statement is? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the commands I have instructed you. And then the promise, and behold, I am with you to the end. I am with you. I'm with you. Do you understand the irony of that? Because when Jesus repeats the similar thing in Acts, as he's about to get ready to ascend into heaven, he's not physically with them anymore. But he is with us. Christ in me, the hope of glory. God, the Holy Spirit living within He is with us. And by the way, when he says he is with us, that's not just a statement of his presence, but if you really study he is with us, it's a statement of his favor and power behind us to accomplish what he's called us to. He is with us to the end of the earth. There's no place you can go where he's not with us as we take that mission to reach all nations. Or maybe your Bible's at the end of the age. He is with us till it's all, till history reaches its final moment. He is with us. So there should be a confidence as we go about that mission, not an intimidation. It's a really interesting uh, a fact. Um, I heard a preacher one time say, as he was researching this deal. He said, um, he said, I was curious in the last several hundred years, what branch of Christianity has sent the most missionaries out all over the world? And he said, I was absolutely positive it had to be the Baptists. We have the most prominent mission agencies and have for several hundred years. And you remember him saying, kind of cracking joke, and all, all of the top missions preachers are all Baptists. And he said, I was shocked when I discovered it's not even close. It's the Pentecostals. And he said, I'm going to process why that possibly is. And he said, I, came, I, th- I think this is why it is. He says, we as Baptists rightly talk about the seriousness of the mission. There are people who are lost They're dying. They need Jesus. We talk about, so the gravity of the mission, we talk about God has called us to go, he said, but then oftentimes we stop there. Whereas he said, the others seem to go past that and go, yes, there is loss, there is gravity, there is weight, there is seriousness God has called us to. And they go the full length of what scripture says, which is, and the Holy Spirit lives in me to enable me to do something about it. And so they go out with boldness and confidence Church family, what did Jesus say? You will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. We're not living in the day of the disciples with Jesus ascending. We we live in the day where the Holy Spirit lives in us, starting at the moment of salvation, where the power is there. We are able as a church to live this out as individuals and as a church congregationally because He is with us always. And with that, Jesus, Acts chapter 1, ascends into heaven. And to quote the book of Acts, Dear Theophilus, in the first part I wrote to you, all Jesus began to do. The implication being, now I write to you, all Jesus continues to do. Through his church, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the book of Acts does it end? Yes, but it doesn't have a formal ending. Why? Because the mission that started with, with the beginning of the book of Acts hasn't finished. And I believe one day we'll get to heaven and you'll have Acts part one, Acts the rest of the story. And we'll celebrate with the Lord the marriage supper of the Lamb as we see how he played out and worked all things out starting then all the way to now. And so, church family, may we be about his mission, not our own. May we do it in his power, not our own. It's going to demand in the days to come that we that we not just be a church which prays, but that we really are a praying church. Because those same disciples who were told that by the Spirit, what do you see them do in the book of Acts? They are always on their knees praying. And then when they finish praying on their knees, it so says the spirit blows through the room and they get up and they speak the word with boldness. And all of this is ultimate. I told you we didn't in 1 Corinthians, so I'm gonna make good of my promise here. 1 Corinthians 15, I won't read all of it. Time doesn't permit. But you should read all of it. Because here's the reason we have hope today. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ was not raised, your faith, our faith, is worthless. We are still in our sin. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of, most, of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And if you drop down later on, it says, just as we have been born in the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet for the trump will sound. The dead will be raised, and according to First Thessalonians, they will be raised in Christ first. They will be caught up in, in the sky. Those who are alive will be caught up behind them. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on the immortal. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortal, then will come about the saying that is written, death is, is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Victory, O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ who has risen forevermore, amen. And that is our hope because according to the scriptures, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and according to the scriptures, he rose on the third day. And he is alive. So may we not dare in the best of days and in the worst of days lose our hope because our hope is a living hope according to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And there's going to come a moment, whether we're all living or whether we're all separated from our bodies and they're corroded and whatever other nastiness in the ground, there's going to come a moment where the trumpet blare, where our bodies are going to come out of that ground no longer mortal in the way they are now, but just like Jesus' resurrection body. We're going to be reunited in those bodies. We're going to be caught up in the sky with him as he descends in his second coming. And according to Revelation 19, we're riding behind him in the battle array. Not to fight, just to be in utter amazement as he wins the battle completely and totally by the sheer power of his word. That's a good word. And that's our hope as we go out of here. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that we don't follow fairy tales, or we didn't even touch tonight the fact that just just using uh, forensic history, the only possible explanation of the historical facts is that you have risen from the dead. There is no other way to explain what history records other than Jesus, you have risen from the dead. Your word tells us clearly you have risen from the dead. And Father, your word, you, your word clearly tells us uh, what our mission is. Jesus, it clearly tells us you have, you have, you've given us the power, Holy Spirit, to, to go out and do that mission. You've clearly said that you've got a plan for our life, and we don't need to be trying to live everybody else's plan, but we, we, we follow you. We're to be driven by love. Yet, Lord, at times we can be as as dense and full-hearted as as those disciples on the road to Emmaus because we can stand here and I am just as guilty and we can quote your word correctly and then put our heads down sad as if there is no hope. Lord, may that not be us. Thank you that you wrestle with the sinner's heart. Thank you that you, you wrestle with the sinner's heart that is lost. Thank you that you wrestle with our hearts when we wade into sin, that you bring discipline, that you bring conviction, that you will bring and, and, and produce brokenness in us. So Father, may we, may we not fear your correction. May we just delight in the fact that we are weak, but you are strong, that we can be faithless, but you are faithful. And may we be always be quick, Lord, to turn back to you. And may we look full in your wondrous faith. And may we be found as individuals and as a church to be good and faithful in your sight. Thank you so much for letting us be together for the, the days we are living in. Glorify your name, Lord, and use us according to your will. It's in your name I pray. Amen.